1: This is Mornings with Cindy on 980 CKNW. Well, if you've ever had your car broken into or stolen altogether, you know how intrusive that can feel. Well, some new research shows uh, gives us a little bit more insight into carjackings and what the motivation is for this crime in some uh, circumstances. Joining us to talk more about this is Bruce Jacobs, a professor of criminology at the University of Texas. Thank you so much for joining the show this morning. My pleasure. You have been studying this for a couple of decades, at least. What even got you started in looking specifically at carjackings and that type of crime?
0: Well, it was an understudied uh, offense within the broader urban landscape of crimes. That's the main reason we started looking at it. Um, It also, it it merges uh, property crime and violent crime in a way that's somewhat unique. Uh, Property crime in the sense that, uh, you know, a, a car is being stolen, but, but violent crime, insofar as the as force or threat of force is used to seize that vehicle, which makes it unique uh, in the realm of of criminal offenses.
1: Right. So you're talking specifically when we say carjackings, uh, that the force of taking the car, not uh, somebody. Maybe you wake up in the morning and your car's been stolen from the street.
0: Right. There's a major distinction between motor vehicle theft and, and carjacking. Uh, carjacking involves force or threat of force to seize the vehicle from uh, its owner. And typically, not always, it involves, uh, you know, the driver sitting inside the vehicle with the keys and, and the engine on. Now, not always, but typically that's what it involves. Whereas motor vehicle theft is, is a non-contact property crime where the car sitting on the street. The offender breaks in, hot wires it, and takes it away.
1: And when we look at the the crime of, of carjacking, is it? I'm, I know it's oversimplifying to say this is somebody who wants to steal a car. But what is it or what have you been able to uncover in your research as far as the motivation for somebody to do something that is that intrusive and invasive and frightening to the person who's in the car?
0: Sure. There, there's no one singular motive that drives this offense. It's really a variety. Obviously, you've got the economic motives of money you know, stealing the car itself, uh, chopping it up for parts, not infrequently. It's not necessarily the, the car itself. That's the target, but some of the high end audio and visual systems inside the vehicle, or maybe performance wheels and other accessory items that are, uh, positioned on the vehicle. Those are cat, uh, you know, liquid or, or equivalent to cash and are re- very easily sold, uh, you know, on the parts or on the street for parts. There's additional motives though, for example. Um, Sometimes carjackings are just for thrills committed by young offenders. Sometimes uh, carjackings are committed as a method to, uh, you know, escape from some some sort of ongoing emergency. Then there are also carjackings that are retaliatory in nature, where somebody says or does something that the offender takes affront to, and the punishment is to seize the car by force or threat of force. So there's no one singular motive, but more a variety of motives that energize this crime.
1: And has it changed with the changing of vehicles, as far as more security features and how cars have have become more more te- technical and and having uh, the the different features in them?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, back in the day, you might be able to break in into a you know old Chevy or Oldsmobile or Cutlass, strip down the ignition column and stick a, a screwdriver in there and get it started in thirty seconds. These days cars are much more technologically advanced they have they require comp- computer chips to start proximity readers they have tamper resistant you know platforms in the dashboard so it's become a lot more difficult to not only break into the car but to get it started and hotwired and drive it away so a lot of these offenders are turning to carjacking as a, a lower hassle uh, quicker risk, way to, you know, seize a vehicle once it's already running and the keys are in it. Simply go up to the driver, point a gun or a weapon, throw them out of the car and take it. And that's pretty easy for a lot of these offenders.
1: Hmm. And I understand as well, your research looked at this in that the pandemic saw, uh, looking at least at some U.S. cities, that there was a big increase in these types of crimes.
0: Yeah, there seemed to be an uptick um, in, 20, in 2020 into twenty one. And some of the emerging research suggests that the COVID lockdowns had something to do with this. Uh, first, it gave a lot of uh, youth who are at relatively high risk for this type of offense a lot of free time, a lot of unsupervised time to get into trouble. Second, um, the lockdowns seemed to change the opportunity structure for some of these other crimes. Like, for example, if all the stores are shut down, you can't really go in and shoplift. If everybody's home um, in their apartments and homes, it's a lot easier to break in and do a burglary and steal their stuff because people are there. Um, obviously, we talked about motor vehicle theft, nonviolent motor vehicle theft, as being, you know, relatively difficult to break into the car and get it hotwired and, and driven away. So so that combination of factors seemed to really increase the opportunity structure for for carjacking. In addition, you have, the, obviously, the ubiquitous COVID mask, which... Um, really increase the anonymity factor for a lot of these offenders. Um, So, you know, you could just, first of all, you could go up to somebody on the street in a parking lot, in a parking garage at their house with a COVID mask, and it's not suspicious because everybody was wearing them. And the second thing is it it creates a great deal of anonymity for the offender in terms of minimizing the risk of detection and and identification, which can embolden these offenders and, and did in fact do that, it appears.
1: And when we talk about carjackings as well, do you think, do we as the public have a clear picture on on how prevalent this crime is and what this crime really looks like? Or are we kind of skewed with we hear about the more violent ones or even what we see in movies or on TV?
0: Well, statistically speaking, carjackings are still relatively rare. You know, red, regular robberies outnumber carjackings by a factor of between 10 and 15 fold. Um, And you are correct that the the sensational carjackings, the the ones that involve fatalities or serious violence, they often uh, generate a great deal of media attention. Those are relatively rare. For example, the best available data on on this issue shows that essentially 99.8% of all reported carjackings to this particular database do not result in fatalities. So it's so the, the really serious injury or death-producing carjackings are really rare. But, they, again, they do tend to get the most media attention. They are sensational, and they're very uh, fear-inducing. So they, they, uh, they attract a lot of attention, and rightly so.
1: And did anything else stick out to you in your research uh, that you wanted to share?
0: Yeah, I, I would just say that, um, you know, this is so often an opportuni- opportunistic offense. Um, you know, spur of the moment uh, affair with little advanced plan- planning or casing of the target. So, really, anybody is theoretically at risk to be carjacked at any time. So, the the risk is is kind of uh, uh, ubiquitous in urban centers. It's not a function of like particular criminal hotspots necessarily, or not a function of a particular uh, locations in geographic space. It it because the offense can happen so quickly and so easily. And also because the vehicle is both a target and a method of escape. It certainly attracts some of these high propensity offenders who embrace this quick risk, who who realize that the target is there one minute and gone the next, and they have to act now or else they lose that criminal opportunity altogether. So it creates some, some really curious uh, challenges for both Uh, society and crime prevention practitioners because of that set of data points.
1: All right. Bruce Jacobs, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Global News has been given exclusive access on board HMCS Montreal. That is where we find Global News reporter Mackenzie Gray joining us. Mackenzie, let's start. There is some really dramatic video of a Chinese ship almost hitting an American destroyer. Talk to us about what happened.
2: Well, it was a very tense moment. Uh, the Canadian and U.S. ship, U.S. Chung Hoon, uh, were transiting through the Taiwan Strait. they have been together for a couple of days. we have been in the South China Sea and, and coming in that direction. Uh, And we've been shadowed by Chinese ships basically the entire time we've been out. But as soon as we got into the Taiwan Strait, the Chinese ships became much more aggressive, came substantially closer to both the American ship and the Canadian ship that I'm on right now, HMCS Montreal. Uh, And at one point, we saw this Chinese ship absolutely go full steam ahead, right across the bow, the front of the ship. uh, And we got exclusive video of that. Today, the Americans put out their own video that they had in front of the ship and you can see how close it is it's about 150 yards that's where the commander of the hmcs montreal who i spoke to pretty much immediately following that incident just told us it was you he heard that over the radio and and for a lot of folks i've been thinking well, 150 yards you know it's a football field and a half that's a lot commander of the montreal says look these are big warships going extremely fast these are hard to stop in the high seas that is way too close and a collision nearly could have happened in that situation, so it was very dramatic to see that happen, and we've seen a lot of fallout subsequently from the video that we've got and from what the Chinese did in that situation.
1: That must have been also very dramatic. Being on uh, th- the Montreal, like you said, e- even though it might sound like it's uh, a bit of a distance, being that close and being actually there, that must have been those must have been some very tense moments.
2: Yeah, we we weren't uh, that close to it. We were a little, we were further away, and and for anyone who's seen the footage that we've had. Uh, You know, we really couldn't tell uh, how close it was or if there was actually a collision. It was that uh, intense in that moment in time. And the commander of the ship, the the Montreal, basically the exact same view as us. He can hear over the radio, but he spoke after with us about how the Chinese, one of the Chinese ships basically did the same starting maneuver going towards the Montreal and they radioed over to him. And he knew what he needed to do in that situation was slow down to avoid a collision, which is the same thing the American ship did. The Canadian commander told us the American ship slowed by down 10 knots, which is a substantial amount, to avoid that collision happening, uh, which was very, very dramatic. I had interviewed the commander of the Montreal here in advance of us going in for some stories that we were doing for Global National. And he basically said, look, I don't think this is going to be uh, a lot going on. I think it's going to be anti climactic and there's not going to be a lot that happens. The Chinese are proud of us that there won't be anything big uh, that'll happen, but the uh, he admitted to us after that he was wrong in a substantial uh, international incident. Complaint.
1: This idea, too, of, of the provocation and that certainly it was not an accident. This was very much an intentional move.
2: Yeah, the, the Canadian commander said that to us in the interview we had with him, saying that, look, the, the Chinese Navy and the Chinese military is very structured. The idea that there is going to be some general that goes rogue and cuts in front of this American ship without this moving up the chain uh, is not is very unlikely. Uh, and these kind of provocations we've seen from the Chinese. Uh, A few days ago, uh, there was a a jet, a uh, Chinese jet in the South China Sea when an American jet was going, caused them. uh, The the, uh, American jet had a lot of turbulence issues. So we've been seeing these uh, stepping ups of uh, kind of uh, provocations in a sense to steal the word from the Chinese uh, by them doing different military things in the South China Sea uh, when allied countries have been moving through this area. So uh, it's a very tense time, and it was very tense for us to see this moment, but uh, everything here in the Montreal was okay, and they were not in the same situation that the Americans were and have stated that the interactions that the Chinese have had with the Canadian ship have been professional throughout our time in this region.
1: And what has it been like? Uh, I mean, you've uh, highlighted a couple of pretty dramatic uh, scenes and uh, what you've witnessed there, but uh, for your 11 days so far on HMCS Montreal, uh, what have been some of the other standout moments for you?
2: Uh, well, we were able to get up into the Cyclone helicopter. So this ship, were, I'm talking to you right now on the flight deck here in Montreal, which is normally where the plane takes on and off, but it's pitch black, so this is the time that the helicopter would normally do that. But we got to go up in it, get some great shots of the ship, fly around, and actually rappel down from the helicopter, through, which was very exciting. Uh, but, you know, right now the Canadian Armed Forces broadly, and the Navy is no exception to this, are going through a big recruitment crisis. The Navy has actually uh, recently put forward a new plan, which basically allows anyone to sign up for the Navy for a year. Uh, which is well uh, was basically unheard of. Normally, I had to sign up for three years before. The Canadian Armed Forces writ writ large, they've said they need 16,000 new recruits to be able to basically do the things they want to do. I've I've talked with all kinds of folks on the ship here, and they say, we're getting new ships, but the problem is getting people to be able to come on them to do the jobs. Many of them are highly specialized and require specific skills. So uh, that's a very interesting thing to talk about. A lot of folks hear about the issues with recruitment and what's going on in Canadian Armed Forces. But another key thing is when you think about, you know, like a lot of people think about Canadian Armed Forces uh, in the last couple of years. It's been about sexual misconduct and other issues here. The senior leadership that I've spoken with, and I've had the opportunity to speak to them at length over uh, many different days, uh, at least on this ship, take making a positive and inclusive work environment, something that they're very dedicated and committed to. Uh, and it was very interesting to hear their views and making sure that that is not something, you know, the previous issues that a lot of people have heard about, about the Canadian Armed Forces. They do not want that issue to be is something that goes on here. Uh, and it's been a very professional crew uh, in dealing with very tense situations, like we saw in an Taiwan strike.
1: Mackenzie, what's next for you? Uh, we are on the
2: ship for about 12 more hours. We are going to what will be our final destination, our team here, Okinawa, Japan. Uh, I get off there and then come back to
1: Canada. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking uh, the time out of your schedule uh, to talk with us this morning. Appreciate it. uh, And uh, stay safe and have a great rest uh, of your journey there.
2: Thanks a lot, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, a warning. Uh, This story does include uh, some details uh, that will be disturbing. We are talking about serial rapist and murderer Paul Bernardo. And what we learned over the weekend that the lawyer for the families of two of Paul Bernardo's victims say they were given no warning and they still have been given no explanation about why he has been transferred to a medium security prison that is from a maximum security facility. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Rob Gordon, who's a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Rob, thank you so much for joining the show today.
3: Not a problem.
1: This came as a big surprise, I know, to the families of uh, the victims, uh, two of the victims of Paul Bernardo, uh, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. We heard from Timothy Danson, who is the lawyer for those families. Uh, he spoke on the weekend about the fact that he was told that Paul Bernardo was transferred, but again, given no details. Uh, how strange it is it, or is it strange to be hearing about this or to, to hear about this transfer?
3: Well, uh I mean, he, he is a high-profile offender and a high-profile inmate, and so um, almost anything to do with Bernardo um, you know, attracts some attention, and CSC need to be... Sorry, the Correctional Service of Canada uh, need to be mindful uh, of that when they're, when they're managing him. Um, it's unusual... It would be unusual for there to be any external input into what is, in a sense, a uh, an internal matter, which is the classification and placement of the offender. Um, they presumably uh, have some uh, background information. I mean, they've been with the fellow, they've been managing the fellow for quite some time now. Some background information that would suggest that he's no longer uh such a high risk that he needs to be placed in maximum security. But of course, we're not privy to that. Um, that is uh, the exclusive domain of the Correctional Service of Canada. And about the only way you can crack that open is to uh, appeal to a court uh, indicating there's some kind of injustice or inappropriate conduct on the part of the Correction Service.
1: Hmm. Is it, it seems like a bit of a disconnect that that's the way that the system works, though, doesn't it? When he, his parole hearings come up and family members can attend those, media can attend those hearings in which details are discussed about whether or not there should be a change in his incarceration, that we can hear about that. But then when it comes to a transfer that catches so many people off guard, those details are not allowed to be released.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not here to defend the actual service of Canada, trust me. Uh, On on this particular case, uh, you know, they they should be working very, very carefully. But it's never the case, rarely the case, that uh, outside bodies would be consulted on what is, in fact, an internal transfer. That that would involve an internal movement of of an inmate, that would involve um, all sorts of violations of privacy and so forth because those sitting in judgment uh, on on the person uh, would have to have all the information to fairly uh, consider whether or not this is an appropriate decision. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, given the fuss over the weekend that there's going to be uh, some kind of internal inquiry I wouldn't say investigation but some kind of internal inquiry uh, by management of the Correctional Service of Canada into this decision I don't have details of who made the decision Uh, I assume assume it was a classification group somewhere within the bowels of CSC Um, uh, and they may well be (laughs) regretting it this morning but uh, we shall see
1: Right. And like you said, this is a case that even though it is several years ago, I I think people will remember the case and and just how uh, horrific some of the details and what he was convicted of. We did hear from from the public safety minister, uh, Marco Mendicino, uh, saying that he did not know about the transfer, uh, saying that it was shocking and incomprehensible. Uh, Would that be, is it something that he would have heard about, though, or that, that the public safety minister would have been briefed on?
3: Unlikely. Uh, although no doubt that he's been briefed this morning, but not prior to the decision being made, and of course, correctional services kind of have have custody of the body, so they can actually move him back and forward. Um, uh, and the idea of this is to uh, not only minimise any outside risk, uh, but also make sure that the inmate is uh, properly. Uh, managed by internally, uh, that, that he or she is getting um, the kinds of services that are best for them uh, in a location that uh, is appropriate and just. Um, just putting somebody in uh, a building and throwing away the key is not the way to go. Uh, the, the Correctional Service of has the horrendous task of trying to uh, manage a prisoner who's likely to be very aggressive and uh, uh, difficult to manage uh, if if there is no hope um, that this individual will ever be in a different situation. And that's one of the reasons why a great deal of discretion is given uh, to relative discretion given to the Correctional Service of Canada to manage the inmate. So, it's, it's for internal security purposes as much as it is for uh, the benefit of, of, the, uh, of the inmate and the protection of the pub- public. I mean, those are the primary criteria.
1: Would it also be a factor, the fact that so he he has, I believe, in the past asked for uh, some loosening of the restrictions uh, where he was being held in maximum security? Uh, We know he was uh, designated a dangerous offender, meaning he could be kept indefinitely. Uh, Does it factor in the dangerous offender status when making a decision like this?
3: Oh yes, for sure. I mean, they're, they're going to be looking at whether or not he is a risk in medium security. That sounds strange, but uh, if he goes from max to medium, um, there is a, a, a status improvement for this particular inmate, um, uh, particularly in the eyes of other uh, of other inmates. I mean, he may well. Um, uh, he, he may well gain gain. So I wouldn't say prestige is not the word, but uh, he was certainly gain some status by being moved out of max and going to medium. I mean, the difference is slender um, in many instances. Many instances, it's a slender difference. It's not. It's not as if the guy's walking free and you know gets um, more time uh, in the yard. This sort of stuff. I mean, he. he He is still in prison, he is still behind wire and behind bars, and he is still subject to the prison discipline and control mechanisms. He is not getting away scot-free with anything. So the question really is why would they move him, and I assume they're doing that because they think that the maximum security provisions – uh, provided in the institution are over-the-top and unnecessary and quite likely expensive as well. Uh, I, I've not, I haven't followed the case that closely in the last few years, so I don't know exactly what he has been experiencing. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that they'll be considering. It's not always time to let this guy go. He's a good guy now. Right. It's more a case of, is he appropriately located Uh, where he is or where he's going. And that's the end of the story.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. All right, if you have ketchup in your fridge, you are not alone. Almost 90% of Canadian households have a bottle of that red condiment in their fridge. We're talking about this because you might not know that today is International Ketchup Day. So let's talk a little bit more about ketchup and why it is so popular in Canada, as well as the background to it. April Liu is a historian, also manager of public programs and education at the Chinatown Storytelling Centre. April, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a fun topic to get to the history, how ketchup made its way to Canada. What can you tell us about this Canadian staple? Absolutely.
4: Uh, well, when I was doing this kind of research at the Chinatown Storytelling Center, it just blew my mind to find out that ketchup, this word that I've known growing up all my life, you know, is actually a Hokkien word. Uh, Hokkien is uh, it's from the southern, southeastern part of China from Fujian province, but it's a language that's actually spoken all throughout Southeast Asia and in diaspora. So ketchup is actually a Hokkien word that first referred to fermented fish sauce, so as early as the 1400s, uh, the traders from southern China would, you know, they went far out into the Southeast uh, Asian uh, area and beyond, and brought back from Vietnam this fish sauce. Uh, in Vietnam, it's called milk mum. Brought it back to southern China. It was traded all throughout Southeast Asia, and it wasn't until roughly 17th or 18th centuries that the British traders came and developed a taste for it. And they brought it back to England and began experimenting with their own ketchup recipes in Europe. Um, at, at this stage, ketchup had no tomatoes in it. This was, you know, a fishy, savory sauce, um, you know, first made in Asia. But when it got to to uh, England, they started really adding interesting ingredients. They started adding mushroom, walnuts, anchovies, oysters, and basically whatever they could find to try and replicate that savory taste from from Asia.
1: (laughs) That's early origins. (laughs) Wow. Who knew it was such a a complicated history uh, to get to to where ketchup is today? Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, the tomatoes didn't come till much later. So that was,
4: you know, a a late 19th century, um, a Pittsburgh man named Henry Heinz started making tomato ketchup in large quantities uh, in the U.S., you know, adding vinegar and ripe tomatoes to really help preserve the sauce. Um, and by 1905, he had sold some five million bottles of ketchup. And what I find so interesting is that that hooking word "ketchup" remained in place for all that time,
1: up until today. <laughs> yeah. Do we know then how? Because some people often refer to it as catsup. Do we know how it kind of morphed and became uh, that that word came about?
4: I think it is a just a, a distorted, you know. Um, way of saying the original word, which is right. get up, and even well nowadays uh, this word get up is not really in modern usage in Hokkien, but the second part of the word up is still widely heard. In, in you know the Cantonese speakers out there will know up. Ketchup is a very common Cantonese word for sauce. <laughs> so,
1: huh. yeah, it's actually part Cantonese as well. <laughs> and when you talk about how it's changed and kind of the, the adding of the tomato to it, is, is it a bit of kind almost, though, kind of stealing the word in that they, they went from, like you said, this fish sauce and it was a savory fish sauce uh, the, from Southeast Asia and then to, to kind of have it morph, but keep keeping the word ketchup when really it's not the same thing at all. Absolutely,
4: and I think that's the beauty of the story is that so many different cultures contributed to their version of ketchup. You know, what was first traded in like you know the 15th or 16th century was is completely different than what it is today. And every every culture that adopted ketchup added their own ingredients and sort of you know reinvented it. Um, and and the story actually comes full circle if you look at the cuisines that were. Developed in the Chinatowns all across North America, this is where our research at the Chinatown Storytelling Center really kicks in. Um, we know that in the 1920s and 30s, with the Chinese Exclusion Act in Canada, it was a really rough time for the community. So the Cantonese dishes that the chefs were cooking, they needed to—they were under a lot of pressure to to adapt it to the North American palate, so they could attract more customers and sort of introduce people to you know, Chinese heritage, Chinese cooking. And so ketchup, enter ketchup, (laughs) you know, they would start adding ketchup to make uh, sauces like sweet and sour pork, you know, the sweet and sour pork sauce. That was uh, really a kind of a fusion dish in Chinatown was a way to sweeten the, the Cantonese sauces for the North American palate. So Ketchup became really useful again. (laughs) That's actually used in a lot of sweet and sour sauces that came out of Chinatown in the early days. And and even they put ketchup in chop suey, which is another, you know, sort of fusion dish uh, that came out of the Chinatowns in, in the early 20th century.
1: Did it get the sugar added to it then kind of as it changed from that original fish sauce? Because like you're saying, it was added to to get that sweetness and the sweet and sour and to, to add that flavoring. But anybody will know if you look at the ingredient list on the side of a bottle of ketchup today, sugar is pretty high up there on the list of ingredients. Did that kind of come as it changed?
4: That's my understanding. My understanding is that it got sweeter and sweeter after it came to North America. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, it was still pretty savory in Europe. But when it made the jump over here with with Heinz making his sauce, I think uh, the, the North American palate definitely made it more sweet. Um, and, and in the, the, you know, Chinese fusion, the Chinatown cuisine definitely it was used uh, to sweeten the, the, the Chinese dishes.
1: Would it uh, would it be a kind of, though, would it be odd using it to sweeten the dish? But if you took, say, a, a, an authentic a, a Chinatown a, a meal and just doused ketchup on it, my guess is that would be kind of <laughs> offensive, wouldn't it, to the chef?
4: Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, although I, you know, my parents are Chinese immigrants, and I grew up on this side of the ocean, and we just loved adding ketchup to everything Chinese. I mean, I remember growing up watching, Saturday morning cartoons with uh, shrimp chips and just dipping my shrimp chips in a, a giant bowl of ketchup.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow! Well, so so you are then definitely definitely in the the ninety percent of households that have that bottle in the fridge and are still big fans of ketchup.
4: Absolutely, and I think uh, it's it's these stories are so great because it just shows us that culture is messy. You know um, that we are we've been you know trading with one another and, and exchanging ideas and for, for millennia, really. Um, so it's just, it's wonderful that, that, you know, ketchup has this sort of international, global, multicultural history that we can embrace on uh, on International Ketchup Day. Right.
1: Do you, Are people surprised when you tell them the background and the history of where ketchup came from? Oh, my goodness. It's a great
4: uh, conversation starter. Absolutely. People are just floored. And, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a lovely way to get people to get take more interest in history as well, um, you know at the storytelling center where we're always trying to find ways to, uh, to to tell interesting stories you know about our heritage about Chinatown, and this is definitely one of them. It's a It's definitely something that everyone can relate to, like you said, over ninety seven percent of us have it in our fridges in North America. <laughs> So it's a common denominator that we can start with to start, uh, you know, these discuss- these very fascinating discussions on how history connects us all.
1: Right. Does it help you as well or is it kind of a jumping off point that gets you then to having other conversations about other uh, inventions, maybe with roots in China and how those two have changed our lives today?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Food is a food is a big topic. You know, we have, you know, tea that came from China, but then became this incredibly popular global drink with like infinite variations from different cultures, right? Um, language, it folds into that as well. Uh, you know how Cantonese has become, you know, this language of the Chinese and diaspora and you know how Cantonese culture, Cantonese cuisine has really fused into the history of uh, North America in so many interesting ways with their early immigrants and all of their many contributions um, in, in building, um, you know, the railway and you know the gold rush and you know just just woven into our history. So definitely, food is a is an entry point for that. And I think if you you know with the revitalization of Chinatown happening today, food is another big uh, attraction for people to come back to the neighborhood and experience that that amazing
1: heritage that's there. (laughs) It's definitely a way to, to bring people together is around food. All right, April, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me.